Alrighty, welcome everybody to the Godcast episode 23. Um, today we'll be doing a completely different kind of uh, uh, podcast episode, something totally different than beforehand. Uh, this is actually a school assignment I'm doing, um, and I have my grandfather with me here. Hi, Zave. And um, this is a uh, like this is basically just a living history assignment in which I interview my grandfather who lived um, th- during the Cold War era. Um, which is totally different than comparative religion, but it's still, I think, very fascinating. Um, so why? So you can introduce yourself if you want. My name is James Nizel. I'm the grandfather of Xavier Nizel, and uh, I uh, I was in the United States Air Force. <clears throat> excuse me, from nineteen from February nineteen sixty one until February nineteen sixty five. Uh, and the reason I joined the Air Force was because at that time they had the uh, the requirements for uh, being in the military, and if they called you up, uh, you went into the Army for at least two years. And I decided if I'm going to go into the military, I'm going to go into one of the branches that, that maybe could help me uh, experience something I could use in later life. So that actually um, kind of answers my first question, which is why did you choose to join the Air Force during uh, the, the Cold War era? Um, is, it, is this, if I get this correctly, is it basically that the, that the um, government was going around calling people and if you fit the requirements for, their, um, for, their pro, for the, the military program, you'd, you'd have to join or is it like um, more voluntary? Well, you, <clears throat> excuse me, you had to join. Um, most men from 18 to 35 uh, we're in a lottery, and if your quote-unquote number comes comes up, you were in the military. You would be in the United States Army. Uh, that was the beginning of the Vietnam conflict, and uh, it was still questionable. It was not still. It was questionable at the time whether that was uh, the thing that the United States should be involved in. Um, not wanting to go to Vietnam, if you will and wanting to serve my country in a, uh, in a way that would benefit the country and benefit myself in a learning process was to join the Air Force. Uh, took the tests and uh, was given an assignment. I first went to a technical school for about four months, uh, electronics and electrical, uh, and I wound up my first assignment was uh, Andrews Air Force Base in Washington, D.C. I'll stop you right there because that's actually our uh, sec- that's my second question regarding that. So um, my understanding is that you were stationed at Andrews Air Force Base in Washington, D.C., and this was actually during the Cuban Missile Crisis itself, uh, which has um, so far been like the tensest, you could argue, is you could argue that's, that was the tensest moment in human history. Um, so what actually, what exactly happened at this time while you were in Andrews Air Force Base, while you were stationed there in Washington, D.C., during this incredibly tense moment being the Cuban Missile Crisis? Incredibly tense is accurate, very accurate. It was scary. Uh, there was conflict. There was verbal conflict between the USSR and the United States when our reconnaissance flights were showing that there was activity in Cuba, 
and it turned out to be they were missiles, nuclear missiles going into Cuba. And the United States wanted to blockade any more ships to come in. Uh, and that was the time when I got involved in this whole thing. Because Andrews Air Force Base was A, uh, very close to the eastern seaboard, and B, one of the biggest Air Force bases in the country at the time, uh, that place was filled with B-52 bombers, fully loaded, and B-47 bombers, fully loaded. And by fully loaded, I mean they had weapons in there that their engines were constantly running. They were all lined up on the runway, one after the other, after the other, after the other, ready to take off at a moment's notice. And their engines are running, and my job that I learned how to do in my uh, technical school was to service the engines on these aircraft to make sure they were running properly, smoothly, and they didn't need any maintenance because once the button was pushed, if you will, they would go full throttle down the runways and they had better be ready. Uh, the B-52s would probably be destined for Russia, or at the time the USSR, and the B-47s were going to go to Cuba. And that time frame, that 10 days in May, 1962, was a time where we could have conceivably annihilated each other. So my job was to service those aircraft engines. Uh, and that was a, tw a 12 hour day, 12 hours on, 12 hours off. And uh, I had this little, vehicle that behind it I would tow test equipment to check the engines. And each place I went to, there was a number of aircraft and it was surrounded by military police with their weapons. And uh, you were only allowed to enter the area if you had proper identification. And I did. And each time I went into an area, <clears throat> excuse me, I would stop at the guard gate, identify, identify myself, show my IDs, and was then allowed to go in to the vicinity of the aircraft and to check out the engines of the aircraft. I would do this for 12 hours a day, go back to my barracks, go to sleep, get up, do it again the next day. This went on for about a week. So each day I would go into this secured area uh, with the military police there escorting me in and it became familiar to me that I would go to the same location and see the same guard and do the same routine. Except this one time I did a little something different. When I approached the gate, the guard came out to check me out, to check my ID, and I just kind of gave him a wave because I had seen him a number of times. 
and I started to drive through the gate and went about 20 feet and then felt something cold on the back of my neck. And I realized it was an M16 because I had not done the proper protocol to stop, identify myself, show him my ID, and get permission to continue. I was very complacent with that, and it paid. Uh, first thing he said was, assume the position. Now, I knew what that meant. I got out of my little vehicle very carefully, and I went flat on the ground, face down, arms and legs spread. And then he said, now very slowly, show me your ID, which I did. And then he said, get up and go about your business, which I did. Of course, I didn't tell anybody about this when I got back to the base. <clears throat> Until I got the call to go to see the commanding officer of Andrews Air Force Base. And I went into his office, and the first thing he said to me was, what the hell is wrong with you, son? You could have gotten yourself killed. And I apologize for, for, my, uh, for my actions or inactions in not following the protocol. Uh, I could very well have been a plant of the enemy, gotten uh, familiar with the guards, and have done some damage. That, of course, would always be a possibility. I learned my lesson. Pay attention to details. Do as you're told. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. So um, you obviously talked about those, um, how there were all these planes that, I mean, I, I find that very fascinating, how, how you, you said that they're, they're like running 24-7, ready to just take off at a moment's notice. And you said to Cuba and uh, the Soviet Union. So what uh, weapons were on those? Were those conventional weapons or were those nuclear weapons? Those were nuclear wow. weapons on those aircraft. And the most ominous part of that is as you approach what they call the flight line, where all the planes were lined up with engines going, yeah. you could see them that they were heavy with armament. You could just feel the heaviness of the planes that they sat there, and you could feel the ground shaking from their from their volume and from their noise. Did you actually see what the nuclear weapons looked like, or were they concealed within the planes? No, they were all concealed inside the bay, inside the bomb bays. I could not see any of that. I just had access to the plane's engines and my test equipment. Well, that's, that's insane. To put that in perspective, you were basically given the job to make sure that these planes that, if worse came to worse, that they would like basically result in mutually assured destruction. So it was like, it was a very, um, that job had a lot of gravity to it, to put it mildly. Uh, this was a serious time. This was, this was the closest I think this country has ever come to being annihilated. 
And if we didn't have diplomacy, uh, if we had callous cowboys in charge, we wouldn't be sitting here having this conversation. It took a lot of diplomatic discussions, a lot of give and take. And we had painted Khrushchev into a corner. And when you paint someone in a corner, they're going to come out screaming. There's going to be damage done. Uh, we had to find a way other than that. Now, I don't, I don't mean to politicize this, but diplomacy is what saved this world from annihilation. So we obviously talked about the Cuban Missile uh, Crisis, how everything was literally like to the brink of the entire world um, was to the brink of potentially being annihilated. Um, and that's that that's to me is that to me that is terrifying but you were obviously there first person as we've heard so how do you think the general public felt after the um the potential for the cuban missile crisis to become a full-blown nuclear catastrophe was averted so after um the weapons were pulled out of uh, turkey by kennedy and then um pulled out of cuba by khrushchev i think there was a collective sigh of relief from the world that we had come so close, so close, the closest we have ever come to annihilating each other. Of course, there were other ramifications in that. If we attacked Russia, what would the Chinese do? And if we went into Cuba, what would, what would the uh, South American countries that were allied with, with uh, Russia do. Um, there would be a great domino effect. And we could literally have ended this world as we know it. So kind of switching away from the incredible intensity of the Cuban Missile Crisis to um, a more general question about um, you being in the Air Force during the, the Cold War in general. So while in the Air Force, did you ever think that you would be called on to, um, aside from, um, I guess, obviously the um, the Cuban Missile Crisis, but did you ever feel like you'd be called on to go to like an, another war, one of the one of the other wars that, that occurred during that time, such as Vietnam, for example? Or did you think you'd ever be given like some sort of uh, military, some sort of covert military operation, besides obviously the one that you, were, that you described? Covert, no, because they didn't have the training for that covert. But overt, yes. There was a lot of talk that they needed people of my, uh, uh, my training to go to Vietnam. And in my group, there were probably four or five guys that did go to Vietnam. Now, one of the, I, I had at that time about two years left of my four-year commitment. So that would have been plenty of time to send me to Vietnam. In what capacity, I don't know, but it would probably be at one of the Air Force bases or, or one of the air bases in the Vietnam for uh, aircraft maintenance. Uh, certainly not jungle warfare, but still the, the possibility of going to a foreign country and being involved in military action was very scary. 
So from what I have gathered during this time, there was obviously lots of uh, fear of, of communism within the United States, like infiltrating the, the country. And I think if you go back um, to, uh, you know, like 10 years before the night, well, obviously 10 years before the 1960s with the 1950s, and you had like McCarthyism as an example, um, being a perhaps the most um, extreme manifestation of that. Um, so what were your experiences with um, the constant uh, fear of and, tr- and constant attempts to root out communist uh, infiltration in, in the U.S. government and Air Force? Uh, basically nothing. There was no talk, no conversation about that. Uh, McCarthy had pretty much imploded himself. Uh, but what's interesting is there was, a, there was a lot of conversation about, well, when did the Cold War start, quote unquote? When did the Cold War start? And uh, some have said, well, it started really with, uh, uh, oh, what's his name in uh, England? Oh, Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill's Iron Curtain speech? Winston Churchill, with his Iron Curtain speech, they thought, well, that's the beginning of the Cold War. That's when Russia, the USSR at the time, uh, was very aware of those conversations. Uh, There was also a time when some people said, well, President Truman is the instigator of the quote-unquote Cold War mentality. Secretary of uh, uh, Defense at that time could have been involved in that. It's really hard to say where did it start, but there was a lot of repercussion from the McCarthy era. And uh, his, uh, there was communists all over the place, uh, which of course turned out to be inaccurate. But still people were very concerned about that and had wondered, did the missile, Cuban Missile Crisis have anything to do with these communists in the government? Which of course showed that it didn't. So um, I remember, like, um, you told 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 a story a little while ago about how you were like um, that some government agents came and you were like um, sort sort of in- interrogated because you didn't have because um, you weren't born in, in the United States. So I, maybe you could tell that story if if it relates to um, the uh, general Cold War theme. Well, that's that's interesting that you bring that up because this. But now we have to go back about two years. I was in my first technical school. Uh, and uh, middle of class one day, two men in black suits came in, talked to the instructor on the side, and they asked me, Airman Nazelle, would you go with these two gentlemen? I obviously went with them. They took me into the back seat of a car, a black car, with each one sitting next to me, didn't say anything, took me off base to a building. I went into the building, they took me downstairs in the basement of the building into a room. Now this is something you see in the movies, but this actually happened. Went to the room, there was a chair in the middle of the room, and there was a light hanging down over the top of the chair and they had me sit in the chair. 
and they told me more about my life than I ever knew. The first thing they asked was, why did you fraudulently enlist in the United States Air Force? And I said, I have no idea what you're talking about. They said, you signed a document saying you are a citizen of the United States. And in actuality, you are not. Because during the Second World War, your father, who is an American citizen born in Michigan, was in the Middle East working with his father, who is an Arab. Uh, and they were in the import-export business. And when World War II started, your father wanted to go into the military because he was in intelligence. And he was told, well, to join the United States military, you have to do it in the United States territory. And knowing, of course, then with the Nazis and the U-boats and the destroying of uh, ships, that was not a good idea. So he joined the British Army. Unbeknownst to him, and this came out years later, unbeknownst to him, he lost his American citizenship. So when he and our family uh, came to the United States in 1947, he immediately reapplied for citizenship to again become an American uh, citizen, thinking that the whole family goes along with the ride. But what he didn't understand or wasn't told was that only he became a U.S. citizen, hmm. even though I was born to an American uh, citizen, I was not in that uh, in that the situation where I would automatically be become a citizen. That's what our family understood, and that's what why I signed the document saying I'm a U.S. citizen. Well, these two gentlemen began to tell me all about my family, all about my mother's sister, who was in Czechoslovakia at the time, that she was a counter-spy for the United States. I had no idea. Wow. And they told me more about my family than I ever knew. This, to me, was part of this, this McCarthy looking at where are the communists in our government. Wow. Needless to say, as, as soon, well, what they said was, we believe you. But here's what you need to do. When you get to your first duty assignment, you become a citizen. Well, I did. Wow. That's, that is chilling because of, of the incredible knowledge that these people had of like your fam, your, the, the, the family past. That's, that's uh, it's pretty, it's pretty intense. I um, but uh, that that I guess that doesn't surprise me too much because I mean, uh, there there's certainly yeah. Well, when I told my mother of the situation, she laughed and she says, "No, my sister was not a counter spy. No, I know my sister. Well, not as well as she thought she did." 
Wow. When my when her sister lived in Czechoslovakia, which was under communist rule at the time, uh, she had no idea that his her sister worked for the United States government. Wow. So moving on to just kind of to, to lighten the mood, or bring down the intensity at least. Um, we've been talking about um, the the like the the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, we've talked about um, the um, your you know role tending to the planes with nuclear with the nuclear weapons in them. And we've talked about the um, talked about the, the interrogation and the government. The incredible, um, well, incredible in the sense that it's vast. Maybe not incredible in the sense that it's good, but the high degree of government intelligence. Um, but now for kind of a lighter um, question, um, while you were in the Air Force during the Cold War, um, um, what were some fond memories of being in the Air Force at this time? Fond memories? Yeah. Well, Xavier, one of the fondest memories was wanting to get out. Uh, well, I, can, I can totally understand that, yeah. I had my years... Uh, I got married while I was still in the military. My then bride and I, well, we, I got a leave, went to Milwaukee, we got married. We then traveled back to Washington, set up an apartment, uh, had our first child, uh, and then we're expecting our second child. And my tour of four years was just about up, so I asked if I could re-enlist for only two years, which was not the proper methodology of re-enlisting. It's either four years more or nothing, so I asked for two. They turned me down, saying, no, that's not possible. A week before, I was to be discharged. They came to me and said, okay, we accepted your, your two years. You can re-enlist for two years. And at that time, we were done. We were, we were all done with the military. But it was a great experience, both in learning a technical skill, learning about, about working with other people in sometimes stressful situations. Uh, and it was just an opportunity to serve my country as best as I could. So usually historians mark the end of the Cold War with the dissolution of the Soviet Union, so in 1991. So looking back on that time of the Cold War in which you served, being the 1960s, um, how have your views of the Cold War changed and or how have they remained the same? Looking back at that time in the 60s and looking forward to the end of the Cold War, if you will, in the 90s, and looking at today, Nothing much has changed <laughs> other than the words we use. We are in another time frame of a quote-unquote Cold War situation, but now we have a lot more players involved. We have the resurgence of China. Yeah. We have North Korea. We have some dictatorships in uh Southeast Asia, the same in uh, South America. So this has become 
more complicated Certainly. than less complicated. Because there are so many new players and each of the players has a different set of agendas. Hmm. That sounds that sounds very I think that I think I, I obviously don't have that perspective of living in the Cold War era, but that sounds to me like in, in, I think that hits it right on the head. I mean if you look at, you know, China right now, it's um it's I, I think China really uh, if I were to make kind of a general statement, really um the Chinese government, I don't want to say the people, but the Chinese government has, has never really rested so to speak uh, with the exception of like the 19th century because it's always been very dominant it was the most dominant civilization on earth really i think arguably until the 19th century when there was the opium wars and so forth and it didn't get on board with the industrial revolution but if you look at like mao i think that that's certainly a big point of, of comeback onto the world stage um for better or for worse um i think for better for the chinese government for worse for pretty much everyone else especially with um like you can see how china is trying to invest in foreign economies you'll see them in like south america doing uh projects with mines in south america um and you'll see them uh getting involved in middle eastern economies um african economies and the whole belt road initiative thing trying to kind of rebuild the silk road so and then you'll see them with their their fleet they have the largest fleet on earth at this point in time so um i definitely can get behind uh that perspective even though i or that that the points you've made even though i don't have that 1960s perspective also uh, what lessons if any do you have from you have for americans after being in one of the tensest if not most the ten if not the most tense era in human history so far being the Cold War. What lessons can you extract from that? Uh, one of the lessons I think we may have learned during the Cuban Missile Crisis and can learn now in our interactions with other countries, hostile or friendly, is that we need to be open, we need to communicate, we need, and some people don't like this word, we need to come to, uh, what was that? Not compensation. Cooperate. Cooperate. To co-op, thank you. We need to cooperate. We are not a country standing alone by itself. There are people who say, well, you know, America first and to heck with the rest of the world. That's vain. I think that's dangerous. We are a part of this world. We need to partic participate in the activities of this world. We need to be open that we are a democracy. At least, I hope we stay a democracy with what's happening nowadays. But we need to be open to the world. We need to compromise. And we cannot isolate ourselves because that would be dangerous. So I think this this second last question is 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 very um, fitting for the fact this was recorded on Memorial Day, um, uh, being uh, what's today is like um, May May thirty May thirtieth May thirty first, but it's May thirtieth uh, Memorial Day two thousand twenty two. Um, so I think this this question is very fitting um, regarding. The American spirit of the day. So you emigrated from Palestine to the United States and you've traveled around the world to Vatican City, to Italy, to Turkey, and to Greece and so forth. So you have obviously had a uh, more unique perspective of the American identity than most um, people. So that being said, what does it mean to be an American at home 
and abroad. We are citizens of the world. Most countries look up to us, the United States, for guidance, for direction, for the future. We have learned in our travels throughout the world that the United States is favored for their democracy and the way that they do business. And we need to keep that in mind that being a member of the world is more important than just being ourselves without any involvement in the world. So the last question here, um, I think, uh, fits that Memorial Day spirit uh, very, um, very, very, very finely as well. So you have lived through many decades, and you've seen lots of changes in American society and the world at large. When have you felt the most proud to be an American? Right now. Right now by the fact that we can have this conversation. <laughs> that we are not in a country that someone will hear us and will be knocking on our door, hmm. taken into a room. It may be a room in a basement <laughs> with one lamp over the top and one chair. But still, we have the opportunity to speak our mind, to tell our neighbors what we think, to ask our neighbors for help and for forgiveness when we transgress against our neighbors. Be it our neighbors next door, or be it our neighbors in a different part of this world. We are citizens of this world, and we need to act like it. Thank you very much for that. I think that, that, was, that was very fitting for the Memorial Day spirit and for all that's going on right now in the world with the war in Ukraine. Um, and um, it'll definitely have to do the planned episode on Roman Catholicism uh, relatively soon. So definitely looking forward to that. Thank you. Yes. All right. This has been the Godcast. And stay tuned for our planned next episode, which is an interview with an Ahmadiyya Muslim imam, uh, which was an incredibly fun episode to record. And very, very, it, was, it was a very intellectual episode, and I very much hope that you find that enjoyable. And I'm trying to get that up very soon. So that being said, this has been the Godcast. I am Xavier. And I am James. And stay tuned.